0: Argument now, number 951340, Hughes Aircraft Company versus the United States on the relation of William J. Schumer. Mr. Starr.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. This case brings before the court three issues under the False Claims Act. It represents the court's first occasion to address some of the myriad issues which have arisen under the 1986 amendments to that act, And beyond, it is this Court's first key TAM case since World War II. Two of the issues, the meaning of the public disclosure provision of the 1986 amendment and the meaning of the pivotal bedrock statutory term, false claim, are of enduring and high practical significance to the law. The threshold issue in the case is retroactivity, addressed, of course, in terms of first principles by this Court and Landgraf. If the Court pleases, I will speak to the retroactivity issue before turning to the other two questions, which are looming large nationwide in federal court litigation. As to retroactivity, although issues of retroactivity and indeed its very meaning are not without difficulty, we believe that this case fits well within the Landgraf analysis. In particular, the public disclosure provision of the 1986 amendments did something very specific. It eliminated a defense, a very basic defense, namely the defense of government knowledge. That is, at the time of the conduct in question, uses accounting practices under a variety of government contracts. The fact that the government had knowledge of the information or the allegations would constitute a complete bar to Mr. Schumer's lawsuit. The 1986 amendments wipe this out, thereby expanding the circumstances under which a government contractor could face liability. Do
2: they wipe Trump. it out
1: as to everyone, or, or do they wipe it out as to suit by the government? Well, government knowledge would not, of course, be a bar with respect to the government. The government can, in fact, bring a false claims act. So, it, no so, in fact, he's liable.
3: He's, he's, he, he, both then and now, he was liable for the same, uh, for the same conduct, regardless of the government's uh, knowledge. I think the argument made by the other side is that all the change does is, is to say uh, um, uh, in the future we're going to let private people bring that suit as well as the government. Right? Your,
1: Your Honor, if I may, it seems to me that under the Landgraf analysis, the fact that you are permitting private parties theretofore barred to bring the action is indeed, and additional burden using the judgmental process that this court in Landgraf
2: said... Mr. the the conduct that can be charged is the same. But in one case you have the government as a prosecutor. Now you have added a private prosecutor. How does that differ from a U.S. attorney's office that has no strike force at the time a crime is committed? and then beefs up with just a tremendous high-powered crew, can the defendant say, well, it was a thin prosecutor's office when I did it, and therefore you can't retroactively set the strike force after me? Justice
1: Ginsburg, we believe the key distinction is the fact that there is an expansion in your hypothetical of the public service, which is quite decidedly different, in our view, than empowering private individuals who do not take the oath of office and who do not operate, as this Court has noted in case after case, with the same sort of strictures that a public actor, a public official acts under. It's altogether different if you are, in fact, facing the United States government, including a beefed-up United States government, as opposed to a private relator who is motivated by an entirely different set of motivations. This court noted that in its 1943 opinion decision in Marcus v. Hess. There may be issues or motivations of greed, an effort to seek vengeance and retribution, with respect to a particular key TAM action, those are inadmissible qualities of an orderly public prosecution function. And there are any number of safeguards in place to assure that the public prosecution function that you identify is in fact carried out within the context of a culture, regulations, and procedures and, indeed, those procedures are very important. It was Justice Frankfurter who reminded us that the history of liberty is in no small part the history of procedure. Mr. So, Starr,
2: are you then saying that if the uh, government agency, let's say there's an anti-discrimination law, that's put in the charge of a government agency, and then Congress decides to add on to that uh, a private right of action because the agency isn't well enough staffed, that, that the private actors who are given a private right... that they cannot uh, reach any conduct that occurred before the private right was created?
1: It seems to us that while that is a more difficult question in terms of the creation of that sort of private right of action, yes. We believe that under a land graph analysis, that in fact is going to a very material change in the exposure of the defendants in an analytically distinct way.
3: Mr. Starr, you're, you're not really saying that they can't do that. You're just saying that if Congress wants to do that, it has to make it make it clear. Congress could say this statute applies to acts committed before the private right of action is created. Exactly. So you're not speaking of the constitutionality. No,
1: yet. this is not a Turner-Elicorn due right. process issue at all. We are speaking what is the default presumption And we think, just in terms of fairness considerations, this court went to some length in its Landgraf opinion to talk about fairness and the burdens to the parties who are
0: affected by this. What what fairness here seems to be, in effect, an estimate of the odds of getting prosecuted or the odds of getting caught, that is not what we normally mean by fairness in this context. It is, uh, I, I accept the point that the odds of
1: getting caught would not, I believe, hearkening back to Justice Ginsburg's uh, hypotheticals, uh, carry the day for me. Justice Souter, it is only if you accept what we believe is an established proposition in this Court's jurisprudence that an action by the sovereign is qualitatively different than an action by a private actor who is animated by a different set of considerations. The Court has said it. And we believe that is indeed an additional burden that should call upon Congress, as Justice Scalia is suggesting. What we are talking about here is what should be the default presumption. There's no indication that Congress believed that it was enabling a new category of candidates to, in fact, look retrospectively, and especially in this context where what was changed in the law What was changed in the law was the fact that in the ongoing relationship between the government contractor and the government, if, in fact, in this relationship of information flow, if the government contractor is flowing information to the government, in that relationship, that contractual relationship, no stranger to the relationship under the regime that existed since World War II could then come into federal court and assail a particular practice. That seems to us to be a
0: fairness consideration. Well, it's not only fairness. I I suppose it's uh, depriving you of a defense you earlier had. What's your best case for the fact that uh, if you're denied a defense that this is a substantive expansion of the liability... This
4: Court has
1: said, with respect to statutes of limitation in particular, that the elimination of that kind of defense does, in fact, work a change and should not, in fact, be retroactive. What's your best closed. case for that? I is- will get you that on rebuttal, Your Honor.
0: But that's a defense against everybody, isn't it, Mr. Starr? And this is not a defense against everybody, and it's a defense that doesn't have any relationship to the primary conduct.
1: It does have a relationship, I believe, Justice Souter, if I may beg to differ with respect to what this bar is all about. If one carefully reads 3730A4A, it is about the disclosure of information. Who originally had the information? The information, by definition, is in the hands of the government contractor. The government contractor, under a regime that existed for 40 years, 43 years, knew that all it needed to do was to keep the government informed and that insulated it from KITAM relator exposure. That's us. If one doesn't accept that, that is our submission. We think that is, in fact, looking to the underlying conduct of what the contractor is doing and the incentives. For yes, example. but
0: you, I mean, your, your, your answer assumes that uh, in any event, uh, even under the old regime, the government could have sued for precisely what this particular relator is suing on. That is
1: correct.
0: There is no question
1: that the underlying issue could, in theory. I think it does bear noting that, and this moves me, if I may, to some of the other issues in the case, That, and what was Congress's policy that was being implicated here? Congress's policy concern was that there were not enough levels of activity with respect to ferreting out quote, fraud, that there was insufficient government action. What this case represents is the extreme of the most elaborate and careful exacting governmental scrutiny, and that in the context of highly sophisticated and sensitive government contracts, where there is, Justice Souter, a flowing of information continually, including with governmental auditors resident on premises. That is a very different kind of regime than I think the concerns that were animating Congress, which was what? We want to, and this moves me, if I may, to the public disclosure issue and the meaning of false claim.
5: With respect to... Before, before you leave that, could, if, suppose we were to disregard the label, jurisdictional or not, and look at it... Undes- I, I missed the first part of your question. Suppose that in looking to see whether it's retroactive or not, you don't necessarily look just to the label. Which is what you want. Yes.
3: Yes. That's. Suppose
5: correct. we were to look at whether there is fair notice, reasonable reliance, and the settled expectations of your client. All right. Yes. All yeah. right. On the one hand, they know they're not supposed to make false statements. Whoever can sue them. But you think that in fact this change as to who can sue makes a material difference as to how they behave it makes a material difference in That's the, how they would have behaved had they only known it makes a matter, what i want you to sure. do is explain how
1: it makes a material difference in terms of the incentives to keep the government apprised under the prior regime one has an enormous amount of incentives and obviously i'm speaking in the abstract because responsible government contractors keep the government informed and what is at issue here was an extraordinarily hyper-technical dispute as to disclosure, disclosure that was ultimately found, of course, not to not only cost the government any money, but the underlying accounting practice actually saved well, the government money. You don't, the you,
0: you, you don't argue now, and you don't argue in the base, that it gives them the incentive to disclose to uh, some public group that there is a problem. I, and I, I, I suppose that that's because that's just unrealistic.
1: It is in the context of highly... Shall I say sensitive and important projects? What it does do under the prior regime, and again, it troubles. Let me put the
5: question differently. Yes, because I'm trying. To, suppose you find out that the Justice Department hires 50 more lawyers. Yes, nobody would say that that makes any difference. I agree. Although individuals might think, oh boy, I better really be careful. <laughs> All right. How is this different from that? Again, what, is, what practical difference does it make to your client? had your client known in advance that this new law would have governed. Again, it seems... Other to think, than yes, there are 50 more lawyers. No, that, that the incentives, again, are, with respect to
1: the underlying conduct, keep the government fully informed. There was an additional set of incentives under the government knowledge bar because as soon as you made the government aware, and there was a dispute as to whether the government was aware or not with respect to what we were doing, but under the prior bar, as soon as you made the government aware of it, You were free and clear. It was airtight. That strikes us as a material difference. With respect, if I may, with the Court's permission, move to public disclosure. The Ninth Circuit here, and a very important ruling in this respect, held that the disclosure of allegations concerning these accounting practices to employees, undisputed, of both Northrop and of Hughes, did not trigger the public disclosure bar. Now, why did the Ninth Circuit conclude that? It concluded that those employees operate within what the Court called a closed loop of secrecy. This holding, with all respect to the Ninth Circuit, is not moored to the statute at all. Here, in simply engaging in a textual analysis, and then I would like to move briefly to the policy, there was a disclosure outside of the government And that took the form, or in the vehicle, of an administrative audit, one of the enumerated categories of disclosure, and in an investigation, another enumerated category. Those categories, we think, are illuminating, because in contrast to other categories, such as the news media or a congressional hearing, or a congressional report, there is not going to be wide dissemination of a government audit. In particular, in the context of defense contracting, and this is undisputed, the government will not dispute this, the DCAA, the Defense Contract Audit Agency, which cleared Hughes totally, said, thank you, you saved us lots of money, you're terrific, $15.4 million now goes to you. That's a good thing. What DCA also said is, we're not going to be issuing press releases with respect to that. We do not disseminate it. That's DCAA regulations. Congress, of course, knows what its own entities do by way of practice. And thus, it is unrealistic to look to whether the general public would know what we believe the statute contemplates is divulgence by the government to a person outside of the government in one of the vehicles that are enumerated.
2: With respect to that, just just, uh, suppose the government agency gives to the chief auditor of the company a report and says, I want to ask you some questions about this. That's a person outside the government. Yes. Is that a public disclosure?
1: Yes, it is. Under it's one,
2: th- one person, yes. no matter how high up in the company.
1: Yes, it is. And the reason that, Your Honor, while that seems counterintuitive, we think a careful reflection of, of the both congressional purposes, but also, Your Honor, if one looks at the rest of 3730E4A, there is a very important and forgotten person in the drama, and that's the original source. This statute was designed, the 1986 amendments, and this court has very recently said you want to look to the purpose of what what Congress had in mind when it was changing a statute or enacting it. What Congress was getting at, and one can say was it an artful way or not, but what Congress was getting at was to protect original sources, and those are defined in the statute, and the original sources, Justice Ginsburg, are not affected by your hypothetical. That is to say, that would exclude anyone in the universe except an original source from coming forward with the Key 10 action, and as previously stated, it but obviously... The Congress
2: did use the words public disclosure, and the word public disclosure generally implies something more than tell one officer of the compass.
1: I could not agree more in the normal context. If one simply, and our colleagues on the other side have very ably invited the court to focus very specifically on two words. We believe that's not a correct method of statutory interpretation. You look at the entire provision, and then you also look at something that's very important. Very briefly, what Congress was trying to do in the 1986 amendments was to get the right balance. It didn't just say anybody in the world filed a key TAM action. That's terrific. It was a balance. And what was that balance? The balance was we want to encourage true whistleblowers, those who are not opportunistically availing themselves of material that is already available, known to the government. That doesn't assist in ferreting out.
6: Well, but what your interpretation may mean, in effect, is that for almost any government investigation or audit of uh, some suspected uh, fraud or false claim. Um, if in conducting the audit or the investigation anyone other than the wrongdoer is uh asked questions, other employees, sub employees, yeah. any employee, then it seems under your interpretation it virtually wipes out An audit or an investigation for any TTAN action ever. Because inevitably, I guess some employee would be talked to who wasn't party to the. Uh, alleged wrongdoing
1: The apparent harshness of the regime that i 'm espousing and which you 're discerning, Justice O 'Connor is upon reflection true to congress 's intent. If one examines the background of these amendments, one sees that what really had Congress concerned, the National Association of Attorneys General was up in arms on this. This is undisputed with State of Wisconsin versus Dean, which embodied the value of the original whistleblower that 's the true key Tam relator, justice o 'Connor. The good re key tab relator, it is not someone who is not adding value in the sense of
0: bringing information to light that is otherwise hidden. Yeah, but there's another value, and that's the value of the prosecution. It seems to me that the amendment allows for that value to a degree that the, the prior law perhaps did not. It's not just information, it's prosecution. I agree
1: with that as well, because there is, in fact, but I don't think that that should change the Court's disposition that the Second Circuit's approach is correct and the Ninth Circuit's approach is wrong. Because, in fact, of the concern that, in this balance, that the public prosecution function is important, but it in fact needs to be supplemented by private relators. But Congress has been making a qualitative judgment about who are good tam relators and who are not. And under Justice Souter, your regime, a relator is a good relator. But Congress didn't make that policy judgment. It has said, no, we want to bar what otherwise would not be brought as a tam action, save by an original source, uh, if there has been public disclosure in one of these. Edits. And that was its way of
3: of overruling state of the Now, is public disclosure in one of a series of different kinds of hearings and so forth? Yeah. Which is the category in which this public dis- disclosure was made? In
1: an administrative audit or investigation. There were <clears throat> two forms, Justice uh, Stevens. Air Force, first classified audits, and then a series, all before the KETAM action was filed. And that's why the KETAM action here is utterly not only worthless, it is counterproductive, three DCAA audits, finally concluding again that, not that it's material to the disposition of the case, but that Hughes had in fact saved the government money. Just, Those uh, were,
3: suppose sorry. Congress had written this uh, statute, 3729A1 uh, and 2, which is what you're addressing here, Yes, without the word public in it, and it just said, no court shall have jurisdiction under the section based upon the disclosure of allegations or transactions in a criminal, civil, or administrative hearing in a congressional, blah, 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 and so forth, how would that differ from the interpretation you are giving the provision with the word public in it? Yes. Our interpretation does not
1: rob public of meaning, but rather it seems to us that what co- what Congress is getting out here is that disclosure outside the government. We believe that's the most natural meaning. Whereas, if it had simply said disclosure but not public disclosure, that could very
3: naturally be interpreted. DCAA informed. But an administrative investigation doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean disclosure outside the government, does it? No, it, it does not, but there has to be disclosure.
1: The, the, the point is, as one takes the entirety of the provision, there must be a disclosure then of what allegations or transactions in... Uh, So under my interpretation of your redrafted statute, Justice Scalia, it might very well be that under this disclosure would have taken place if there was a communication from DCAA
5: to the Air Force.
1: Whereas public disclosure to us means a divulging of information outside the government, which is is what
5: happened. Is there such a thing as an audit or an investigation where they don't even tell the person audited? I mean, I don't know how you'd do that. I guess there could be such a thing, but... Is that what you're saying, that Congress could possibly have just wanted—it was trying to distinguish cases where the very object of the investigation being told, the result of the investigation, the wrongdoer, is enough to make it public, in your view?
1: Your Honor, I think you have collapsed the object of the wrongdoer, which is a, quote, corporate entity, with what Congress
5: was trying to encourage. I'm just saying, in your view, it makes it public if you just tell the corporate entity being investigated? I think it has to come to the attention of
1: an individual who was, we believe the Second Circuit is right here in terms of the most natural approach, someone who was not involved
5: Fine. in the fraud. and why isn't it a perfectly minimal definition of public to say that disclosure to the public at least means disclosure to a person who is not the wrongdoer, which could include an employee, provided he's being disclosed to in his capacity as member of the public, such as he independently gets it, Now, why isn't that a perfectly clear, minimal definition? Though I imagine you'd lose on that definition I would
1: very much lose because of the last part of your definition. But if you're interested in a
5: clear rule of law that's minimal and satisfies all your
1: requirements, why wouldn't that do it? Because I think that will strike a very different balance than what Congress struck Justice Breyer, because what you will be doing is, in fact, encouraging, quote, whistleblowing actions by individuals who have no information to provide to the government. Remember, what is the value here? If, if, if the court dwells on what Congress's purpose was, Congress's purpose was to encourage whistleblowing. In your hypothetical, Your Honor, there's no whistleblowing going on.
0: That Why do you is, make the assumption that Congress did not also have the purpose to encourage prosecution?
1: It is a balance. I do agree by virtue of asserting my part of the balance, and I hope that when the other side stands up... That the other side will speak to the important part of the balance as well, which is avoiding non-value-laden K-TAM actions. There is simply no value. Congress has determined if one does not come forward with information that is useful to the government, if the government is already hot on the trail of fraud, save again, Your Honor, for the original uh, the original source, which is pivotal to our argument.
6: Will the fact that, uh, in fact, it saved the government money at the end of the day result in some reduction of the ultimate liability here? If
1: there is a technical, and this is, if I may uh, if quickly... It's technical,
6: because I just don't understand the real effect. The, if you allow the suit to go forward.
1: The underlying the problem, Your Honor, is, in fact, the Ninth Circuit, which is our third argument, mm-hmm. the definition of false claim as the Ninth Circuit has now defined it. We believe that in the context of government contracting, that there must, in fact, be some effect or potential effect on the Treasury, that you are submitting a claim for payment of money to which you are not entitled. Something disentitles you. The Ninth Circuit has held that in this case, that is not necessary, that an entirely regulatory violation could run afoul of the False Claims Act.
3: Well, but the Act doesn't just say false or fraudulent claim. Uh, it, says, uh, it says a false or fraudulent claim for payment or approval. That's exactly right. So if you seek approval of, you know, I assume that means uh, approval that uh, this portion of the job has been fully completed satisfactorily, would, would that be covered? It depends upon whether it is in fact a condition of
1: contracting, and whether there is a falsity that affects your entitlement to claim. If under it doesn't your say that it says uh, a claim for payment or approval. What what in your estimation does "or approval" mean? For approval simply means that the government must in fact say we are we have your request, and we will now pay or approve its its payment. And what we think. Your Honor, the difficulty in what the Ninth Circuit has done is to take any kind of violation, whether it has an effect on your entitlement to the payment or approval for payment, and says regardless whether it's an environmental regulation, even if it's not a condition for contracting, you state a False Claims Act and and justice. So you need approval to mean approval
3: for payment? State's uh, false or fraudulent claim for payment or approval? Approval for payment. Doesn't say that. That's the only problem with that. Well, we think that the case law, Your Honor,
1: is very clear with respect to what a, the nature of a claim is. If you go to the nature, the, the, the uh, definition of a claim, a claim is, in fact, a request for payment that money or property is owed uh, by the government to the claimant. If I may, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Mr. Stark. I thank the court.
0: Mr. Gold.
6: Mr. Gold, would you mind telling us what's in it for a plaintiff who at the end of the day is faced with the fact that this procedure that was followed here saved the government money? Is the claimant's recovery diminished? Are we talking about attorney's fees and the nuisance of the suit? What are we talking about here in a case like this where two at the things. end of the day the government saved money? Two Two things.
4: Uh, if I could, uh, Justice O'Connor. First of all, when the case was brought, uh, the the audit reports uh, within the government uh, had not reached the conclusion that the government had saved money, but rather that the government had lost money. Secondly, if uh, in the end the only claim left here is the claim based on the improper uh, uh, cost accounting disclosure statement, Uh, we presume uh, that all that would be at issue in terms of a liability would be the penalty provision for filing a false claim.
6: And what is that penalty if no money is lost? Well, it included?
4: is still, uh, at the time it was 2000, uh, a, uh, a false claim. And I, I think the, uh, the point of this, Justice O'Connor, is shown, uh, first of all by the particular provision we have, uh, here in the background, or, uh, as we emphasize in our brief, uh, a case like the Rolader case in the uh, uh, Third Circuit, where the contractors certified that subcontracts had been let, as was required by the government regulations, through competitive bidding, when in fact they hadn't.
3: Uh, I expect the $2,000 is peanuts compared to what else you're entitled to, and that is the cost of the action, the cost of the civil action. I expect that by the time the the discovery that the government hadn't lost any money was... uh, was made uh, uh, the, the plaintiff here had invested uh, w- well in excess of two thousand
4: oh, uh, dollars you do you, you do get, get your costs pay. don't you as well and uh, uh, getting those from the plaintiffs uh, uh, would be point sweet, right well but it also from the point of view it is not uh, from the plaintiff's point of view it 's not much of an enrichment it 's a non loss uh, for having uh, gone forward. I don't say it is in any. So, no, but that, that, that
3: explains why the suit proceeds. You would you would think once the once the it was found the government hadn't lost any money. you'd say, gee, it's not worth expending a lot more money prosecuting this suit for two thousand yeah. dollars. But you're going to get the two thousand dollars plus all that you've spent up to now prosecuting right. it, plus uh, what you'll spend in the.
4: And if I if I couldn't, then I'd like to go back to the law issues here. The two issues left in this case. The other one on which there are no audit findings and on which, uh, if you compare the original Northrop request for an audit with the final audit reports, there's nothing but confusion, is whether uh, uh, Hughes misled Northrop uh, in terms of what costs would be charged to uh, uh, the radar uh, uh, development uh for the B two uh and whether uh that generated uh false claims. Now there is nothing in there is nothing but discord at this point, and that's why the Ninth Circuit sent that issue uh back. And therefore there may be real money here. Uh, that's just not clear yet. There are two Claims, one of which rests on uh, the issue that the uh, 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 that Hughes has brought up here, the disclosure statement issue, and on that our position is that if the government requires, as a condition of contracting, that you provide certain accurate information in order to safeguard uh, the contracting system and to assure. Uh, that the charges are proper charges. And if uh, you knowingly provide uh, false and incomplete and misleading uh, statements and certifications, uh, then uh, there is a false claim, and that is true whether or not the claim is overstated. So we think the answer to the sole question that... Uh, the uh, that Hughes raises in this regard is no. Uh, in that situation, the False Claims Act does apply, and it generates at least the penalty which assures the integrity of uh, the contracting system and uh, provides the government uh, that kind of benefit. And that's true whether it's you have to show us what your cost accounting system is or you have to let subcontracts by competitive bidding, or you have to uh, tell us what the qualifications of certain employees are if they're to the, be paid a premium. This
0: is addressed to the third question?
4: The third question. If I can now, uh, uh, going rapidly backwards, I'd like to uh, turn to the first uh, uh, question.
0: Oh, on that question, Mr. Gold, it seems to me just as a practical matter, the board of directors of a defense corporation would say, you know, in the light of this new statute, we have an expanded new liability for punitive damages. Uh, we're going to have to change our conduct in the way we disclose. A defense has been taken away from us so that the law has changed. That, In lay terms, they would explain it that way. Uh, I have some difficulty other than perhaps the Winifrey case uh, in finding a case that would support that theory. That's that's just what I'm thinking about this issue.
4: I don't think there's any doubt that when you change a jurisdictional bar, which uh, we think it's fair to call this, I mean, it doesn't go to the merits, in a way which uh, uh, makes it uh, easier for uh, plaintiffs uh, to bring suit, opens the courthouse uh, door... You have had some effect on the legal regime, but that... But it does uh, take away a defense, does it not? I don't believe it takes away a defense. previously you had a
0: defense if you disclosed to the government. Now you don't have that defense.
4: You had a defense in terms of saying this person cannot be a plaintiff. Uh, You didn't have a defense if what you disclosed to the government caused the government to understand that you had made... Uh, uh, false claims on it and uh, because the government could sue uh, and the change here in terms of uh, opening the door to the courthouse to uh, individuals who would otherwise be subject to a bar is one which doesn't change the underlying rights doesn't change the underlying duties and in this case since there can be only one suit per false claim, whether it's brought by the government or a relator, it doesn't change the liability. Indeed, it doesn't even necessarily change the plaintiff, because the government can take over any case brought by a relator. So I do think that what you have here is not a creation of a new cause of action, as in uh, the uh, 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 statute of limitation reviver case, but a true rule uh, regulating the, uh, uh, the procedural uh, and jurisdictional rules of the court. Mr. Gold, would you
3: explain to me again how it, how it could be under the old regime that if I was a contractor and I disclosed to the government I could nonetheless be held liable under the under the false claims. Uh,
4: if you had uh, a situation in which uh, you disclosed to the government uh, your prior uh, non-disclosure, uh, the government certainly could act uh, to bring uh Of the suit, in other words, but
3: let's assume I at
4: the outset, I don't have any. Well, problem. then there's simply no
3: violation mm-hmm. under the old regime. Under any regime. Well,
0: you're you're, you fact, may, you're may, not you're saying, it. Mr. Gold, that the statute made no change uh, by uh, eliminating a defense that had previously been been, uh, been available. That's that's what we're trying to get at here.
4: No, no, I, I I would not want to say that. I don't think that's right. I it made a change in the rules concerning the, the jurisdiction of the courts uh, to entertain uh, suits brought by a private relator uh, on behalf of the government. It did not change any underlying substantive rule, and it did not change in any way the government's pre-existing and pre-1986 and post-1986, uh, rights uh, to go into court.
0: So the effect of the disclosure before this change was exactly what it is after the change, and secondly, you're saying there is, there is no provision under the new statute for a relator to bring in action if the government couldn't bring an action.
4: There's no... Uh, if the government brings the first case... There can be no relator. If one relator brings a case, there cannot be a second or third relator. And if a relator brings a case, the government can always take it over.
5: They're saying, I think, it, it, which is bothering me too, that it just isn't fair. You see, that's, it's, and, and that's, I think, relevant because, after all, a statute of limitations, suppose we were, Congress passed a statute of limitations and tried to revive some action that expired in 1810. I mean, I don't think whatever you call it, that would be so upsetting of reliance interests that we wouldn't permit it. And uh, I don't think. I, and, and, and so they're saying here, you see, it's unfair. We had this defense uh, against the private. Uh, we had a course of action telling the government everything, working it all out with the government, we're home free, and now we don't. So is it, is it, I mean, is there a way that you can address this question if they say they reasonably relied on the old statutes? It's unfair to upset that reasonable reliance.
4: The, the proposition... That you can, after the fact, which is what we're dealing with here, tell the government something and save yourself from liability is simply, uh, an erroneous, uh,
6: statement. Well, the but government- what you're ignoring, I think, the point, which is if you fail, as a government contractor, to disclose something on the form that the government said you should have put it on, and the contractor later realizes, oh, that should have been on that form 8929, and it wasn't, I'm going to tell the government, I really goofed, I made the mistake. The government can still sue, but you've told them. But, under the old law, no key can action could have been brought by a third party for that, because the contractor had told the government, yeah, the government could file a suit, but a disgruntled employee could not. Well, so to that extent, there is a retroactive change, is there not?
4: There is a, a, a retroactive change in terms of uh, the, a mean, the openness of the courts to the private party. if that kind of change which seems to me uh, also to be true of uh, taking the uh, jurisdictional amount out of the federal question uh, jurisdiction which was done or a change which uh, 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 otherwise uh, creates uh, the ability after the fact of somebody else to sue where before uh, only uh, the United States could sue. Well,
6: but isn't that what this petitioner is coming before us and alleging that until the 1986 amendments, we had assumed that while the government could still complain, that no heat tan action could be brought by this particular relator. And they say that was this situation, now, could it possibly be?
4: Well, two things, if I could, because I'm down to my last five minutes. Uh, one is that uh, the, there is no showing that uh, government contractors, after the fact, made these representations to the government in order to cut off key-tam uh, uh, relay relators. And there's no showing that Hughes made any such uh, uh, showing. All of this came out in the fullness of time, and no showing that the government didn't act after the fact uh, if you came in and you said, we knowingly gave you false statements or we knowingly misled uh, a, uh, a contractor. Uh, and I don't think those kinds of expectations have ever been... Seen to be the kind that are protected uh, by this uh, rule of fairness on public uh, disclosure. Uh, the it seems to us the critical points are that at no juncture in the evolution of the 86 uh, jurisdictional bar provision. Uh, were all government disclosures uh, a basis for uh, uh, prohibiting uh, the going forward of a KETAM suit. At every stage, uh, the forms of disclosure which led to the bar uh, were limited. Uh, there was uh a uh, set of negotiations which are not public, and in this instance, as opposed to Landgraf, uh, after uh, the discussions, statutory language came out, and nobody tried to explain it. Everyone seems to have kept uh, their word uh, that the statute would be the statute. And at that point, the forms of or the means by which disclosure could be made, were expanded. But at the very same time, the word public was added before the word disclosure for the first time. Uh, And it's just uh, impossible if you read the statute for what it tells you uh, to say that a disclosure within a contractual relationship, marked confidential for the business purposes only, to be in the only way that a disclosure can be made to a fictitious entity, which is the other contracting party, namely to its responsible officials, is a public uh, disclosure. Well, do you agree
6: yeah. with the Solicitor General's definition? Because as I read the briefs, you and the Solicitor General have a different approach.
4: Well, in... In the the peculiarities of this case, uh, our approach and uh, the government's come down to the same thing. We say a disclosure within the contractual relationship uh, as such is not a public disclosure. The government says a uh, disclosure to the allegedly wrongdoing party is not uh, a public disclosure, and here, because the allegedly wrongdoing party is a corporation, uh, the disclosure to its responsible officers is the only way you can make such a, such a uh, disclosure. I would point out that the government's position at least uh, uh, averts the problem that's uh, inherent in the Uh, tiny bit of concession that uh, the petitioner makes, namely that the uh, petitioners would have you have a jurisdictional inquiry into who in the corporation was involved in the wrong, where the government at least faces up uh, to that problem.
0: Thank you, Mr. Gold. Uh, Mr. Waxman, we'll hear from you.
7: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to take the issues presented in the reverse order, if I may. On the merits, onto, as to the third point, the assertion Hughes now makes, as opposed to the assertion it made in its petition, that a claim under the False Claims Act is false and fraudulent only if it involves the submission of an inflated request for payment is quite wrong. As this Court stated 30 years ago in United States v. Knifer white Company, quote, The Act was intended to reach all types of fraud without qualification that might result in financial loss to the government. It covers all fraudulent attempts to cause the government to pay out sums of money. That interpretation was expressly endorsed in the Senate report accompanying the 1986 amendments, and it is consistent with virtually every decision applying the Act. Thus, in our view, whenever a a claim is false or fraudulent, within the meaning of the Act, whenever it knowingly misstates facts bearing on the claimant's entitlement to payment or a benefit, regardless of whether the misstatement relates to price, the character or quality of the goods or services provided, the eligibility of the claimant to receive the benefit, or compliance with governing laws, regulations, or contract terms. Turning to the second point.
3: Excuse me, what if, what if there's just a violation of a contract term that is so minor that it would not uh, that it would not be the basis for the government's refusal
7: to pay the, uh, the contract price? If, Justice Scalia, if the misstatement could not, as a matter of law, have borne on the entitlement's claimant, or entitlement to payment, it would not be a violation of the act. And there are many... Statements that might be false statements under 1001 that would not qualify. I mean, if I misstate my Social Security number, unless there is a very strange regulation that makes it a condition of receipt, it wouldn't be a false claim.
3: Well, there, I mean, there also may be some provisions about you have to report this, that, and the other thing. Let's assume you don't report one thing. I wouldn't think in the ordinary case uh, the, the result of that would be the government can refuse to pay
7: uh, the entire contract. I think that's right. In the ordinary case, unless it was made an express or implied under the law condition of payment, it wouldn't relate to a false claim. So you're
3: willing to be, to be uh, committed to that. It has to be the
7: condition of payment? Yes, it has to bear on the entitlement to payment in some way. Is that another way
0: of saying it must be material?
7: Yes. In fact, I think although the courts have torn themselves inside out trying to determine whether in this provision and the criminal false claims provision materiality is an element, um, in fact, to the extent materiality is an element, it really is embedded in the test of whether it bears on entitlement to payment or a benefit. I mean, uh, taking this court's definition from Godin and Cungus, the natural tendency to influence or be capable of influencing the decision-maker seems to incorporate this test. Any fact that bears on entitlement is one that is capable of influencing. With respect to the public disclosure bar, we believe that allegations and transactions are publicly disclosed by the government whenever they are revealed to a member of the public outside the government other than to the suspected wrongdoer. In the context of a corporate wrongdoer, I will rush to the test that Uh, Justice Breyer identified as a clear, minimal definition, and state that since corporations can only act through individuals, the test should be whether the persons to whom the government disclosed the allegations or transactions received the information in his or her capacity as an employee or agent of the corporation not just as an individual who happens to be an employee. What what
0: about a disclosure to say not just to Hughes but to Northrop in a case like this?
7: Well, I think a disclosure to Northrop would be, in most instances, a public disclosure. Northrop actually is the whistleblower in this case. Um, And I think a disclosure to Northrop or Northrop employees would have to be considered a disclosure to a member of the public, in this case, the paradigm Keetam relator. But as to disclosures to employees, and I know it is very important for this Court to announce some sort of bright-line rule so that we can apply this this provision, let me give you some examples. Well, Mr. Of-
3: Weissman, before you do that, have you, are you changing your position from what the government – I didn't understand that to be the government's position in its briefs. I thought the brief was not whether it's disclosed to the employee as an employee or as a member of the public, but wa- rather – whether the employee to whom it was disclosed had an obligation uh, to uh, to keep it secret, or was free to
7: disclose it to the rest of the public, to the extent was that that, the test of your brief? that there was some language in our brief to that effect. With all respect, I don't think that was oh. the burden of our of our statement. But we, in an effort to create a bright line, so we we are saying that if it's disclosed either by the government or by Hughes management to someone in the corporation because they're a corporate employee that's not public disclosure. On the other hand, if someone who happens to be a, public, a, a corporate employee files an FOIA request and obtains it, that is a public disclosure. If the government, if the Attorney General pursuant to her authority under 3733, files a civil, sends a civil investigative demand out to persons who may have knowledge of the, uh, of the alleged wrongdoing and one of them happens to be a corporate employee, that is a public disclosure. If a DCAA investigator goes out and talks to people, some of whom are corporate employees, and in the course of the interviews discloses allegations and transactions, that is a public disclosure. That was the Second Circuit's test in Doe.
3: As an employee means he acquires it by reason of his employment? Is that what your as an employee, receives it as an
7: employee, means? He receives it because he is an employee. In other words, Hughes General Counsel sends it to their director of auditing, because he is their director of auditing, and it's his responsibility to respond to the DCAA's charges. What
3: if somebody who happens to be a messenger in the company happens to see that? It wasn't sent to him, but he sees it. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have seen it except that he's an employee. I, I, I was
7: confident we would get into <laughs> some hypothetical... Well, oh, you've a
3: clear <laughs> line. This is what I'm worried about.
7: My clear, line, my clear line is that that would not be a public disclosure because we need a clear line. The employee was there because he was an employee, was performing his functions as an employee, and if he happens to see it, that's not a public disclosure. And what is, although this is a clear line, it leaves contractors like Hughes the ability to calibrate the universe of people it will allow to see these reports. Hughes could decide that only the General Counsel is going to receive this report and no one else is going to see it. Unless it has nosy
3: messengers. uh, Unless it has nosy messengers. Unless it has nosy
7: messengers. And I think think that this really is the, the test that does approximate, as best as we can determine, what Congress's intent was with respect to the changing of the... changing of the KETAM bar from government information to public disclosure. With respect to retroactivity... On that
0: point, with respect to retroactivity, assume this is not a jurisdictional bar. Assume we think that Congress has eliminated a defense. Uh, Should the statute be applied retroactively?
7: We think that the statute is not truly retroactive, even taking your point about the defense as against a KETAM relator, because... This Court stated in Landgraf that a statute has genuine retroactive effect only where the statute would either impair rights a party possessed when he acted, increase a party's liability for past conduct, or impose new duties with respect to transactions already completed. So how does here, work
5: with the statute? Of- here,
7: application of the new key TAM provisions will not impair any legal rights that Hughes possessed when it acted. It will not increase any Hughes legal liability for its past conduct, and it will not impose any new legal duties on Hughes with respect to transactions already completed. As the number say,
3: two, that, de- that depends on whether you want to be realistic or not.
7: Well, yes, but this court did say, I do I want to be very realistic, and I think this court in Landgraf was realistic in saying, a statute does not operate retrospectively merely because it upsets expectations based in prior law. The test is whether it has new legal consequences, not practical consequences,
2: but new legal consequences. So you would say if there were additional punitive damages, that would be no good, that would up the penalty. But that is But the cor- fact that there are going to be more litigation costs... That, that is
7: absolutely correct. So How
5: does reviving an action by, say, new uh, statute of limitations, well, on 10 years later, 20 years later, Congress
7: says, oh, well, uh, we'll change it. The cause of action here is a cause of action under the False Claims Act. That action never lapsed. uh, May I finish my answer?
0: Finish your answer.
7: And indeed, even under the prior regime, if Mr. Schumer had filed an action and it turned out the information was in the government's files, we could have taken over the case and it would have proceeded.
0: Thank you, you, Mr. Mr. Waxman. The case is submitted.